This morning's reading is from Exodus 32:30-33. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, <clears throat> but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Sarah. <clears throat> well, uh, good morning again. I know Josh said it. Uh, so did Sarah, but good morning again. My name is Sean. Uh, I'm the teaching pastor here for Redemption Peoria. And uh, Redemption Peoria is part of Redemption Church, which is nine congregations spread throughout the state of Arizona. Um, each one of those congregations is elder-led and lead pastor-led, and so... Um, we're glad you're here. You might have questions about how that looks or why we operate the way that we do. We'd love to help you navigate any of those questions that you might have. Myself and some of the other leaders will, will be by the Connect desk. And I try to say this every week. You know, if you are um, not new and you've been coming for a while, come up and say hi. Uh, I'd be, be cool to, to get to know you for sure. So um, I'm going to jump in because the reality is this morning we only have three chapters of the Bible to cover, which sounds like yes. But it's three chapters of narrative, and I would argue three chapters of narrative, meaning story, um, is a lot harder to teach in our time allotted than seven chapters or six chapters on the law or the tabernacle. Because you can systematize a lot of that. You can put those things in brackets and, and kind of organize it. When you're going through a narrative, you, you've got to tell the story, or some of it just won't make sense. And so we've got to go through three chapters of narrative. Um, this is a part of Exodus uh, that, you know, growing up, if you grew up in church or whatever it is, you've, you've heard inklings and verses uh, out of this passage here for sure. So uh, we're going to hit as much as that as we can. And then there's this big overarching tone that we're, we want to get to that I think is clear in the text. And I think, um, yeah, I, don't, I think draws our hearts towards Jesus in a really, really unique, cool way. So let me pray for us, pray for our time, and then, uh, and then we'll jump in. Um, Father, Right now we come to you and we would ask that you would send your spirit to permeate this room. We understand that um, in a very uh, real way you've been here far before we were ever here, but we'd ask that there would be a sense that you're here on our, our behalf, that we would recognize um, that you desire to be near to us. We'd recognize that you desire to mold us into the image of Christ. And Christ, that is only possible because of your work um, on the cross, and that's only possible because you rose from the dead and conquered death, that we don't have to continue to move towards death hopeless, but we get to continue to move towards death with a hope that the world could never understand. And we hold that tight to the vest. Um, we really are trusting in that when our heart tells us otherwise, when our mind tells us otherwise. Uh, let us see this text for what it is um, and, and guide us in it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So to do this right, to jump in, um, I want to catch us up on our context here. We only have two weeks left in Exodus, this morning and next week, all right? And next week is seven chapters on the tabernacle again, if you didn't get enough last week. Super exciting. Um, so we'll, we'll finish out with the tabernacle next week. But this is the last time we're going to get a big chunk of a narrative. And uh, that means we definitely have to kind of wrap some things up uh, in, in what we've been talking about. So if you haven't been with us, this is going to be really cool for the next two minutes. If you have been with us, you're probably going to tune out. I would challenge you not to because uh, the unction of the text is going to come from what we know about the, the, the previous chapters in Exodus, okay? Okay, so what we have is uh, God's people, they're in slavery, 
They um, are held captive by Pharaoh and these Egyptians. Um, God does not like this. It's been 400 years since it's been like this. He does not like this. He hears the cries of his people, and he wants to set his people free, and that's exactly what he does. He goes to bat for his people. He fights for his people, and he uses this man named Moses. Now, you have to understand there's a, a passage in Ezekiel 16 that talks about the kind of despair that we're experiencing. Israel is like this baby that is left for dead in a field, and this man comes along and raises this child up, uh, gives it proper jewelry, gives it proper food, gives it proper place to stay. And then this now woman uh, betrays the man that raised this, uh, raised her, right? And this is the idea that we're going to see today. But we have to understand this, this Israelite people that was in captivity and they were slaves. We have to understand how crazy it is and the ways in which God set them free. I mean, they could not do this on their own. And through miraculous means, God did this. He did this through plagues. He ends up parting seas. Uh, he ends up sending this, this spirit or this angel of death, which is kind of discombobulating for a lot of us, right? So there's this, all this going on in which God says, I see you. I see you, and I want to save you. You can't save yourself, and I want to save you. And then he proves himself to be a good protector, to be a good provider in food, provider in drink. And he continues to rally around and saying, I am here. I'm your God. You did nothing to save yourself. I saved you. And then from that point is when we got conversations on the tabernacle and conversations on the law in which he's beginning to uh, or continuing to shape his people. Well, with this idea of this group of Israelites being saved by this, uh, this all-powerful, all-loving God, now we're going to get this interaction in how um, the people truly feel, or at least the direction they move in their heart of hearts. Because what we have seen up to this point is they, they complain a lot. But God has been gracious over and over again. And so the narrative that we were left with last week is that Moses, um, or two weeks ago, he goes up onto this mountain and uh, he disappears into these clouds and God is speaking to Moses on this mountain. And what we're told that he receives uh, in a span of 40 days is he receives all that we've been talking over the last uh, two weeks. He receives the law. He receives how he's supposed to build the tabernacle. And then what happens is now Moses is going to come down, but before he does, uh, we need to see what's going down at the bottom of the mountain. We see and know what God has been telling Moses on top of the mountain, the instructions of the law and the tabernacle. Well, what's been going down at the base of the mountain? And that is our narrative today. That's what we pick up with today. And so this is what it says. I'll do my best to read as much as we can. We're going to for sure, I'm, I'm going to do my best to summarize where we need to. Uh, if you've never been with us before, it's a big Bible study. I'll go through the text, and then we're going to zoom out and see what does this text have to do with us? How does it tie to Christianity? All that. So this is where we pick up in chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, remember he'd been up there for 40 days, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses is up on a mountain. The people of Israel are getting a little anxious. What happened to Moses? Is he dead up there? We have no idea. We need to, and this is important, we need to worship something. We need to worship something. And so they get Aaron and they say, Aaron, you've been close boys with Moses. Do something about this. Give us something to worship. And so Aaron Gets up in verse 2, and Aaron said to them, Take off the rings and, uh, of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it 
with a graving tool and made a gold calf. And they said, these are your gods. It's going to be important. This change of plural is going to be important. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron gets up. He says, okay, fine. You want a god. I want everybody to take off their gold rings. Let's gather as much gold as we can. Kind of melts this gold down and chisels this. It's really important that you understand that he chisels this with this tool and makes this gold calf. And then all of the people worship this gold calf. A few things just kind of to note on this. What's fascinating is up to this point, God has been revealing who he is to the people of Israel. And he's been using his name. Remember when he revealed himself to Moses and he said, I am who I am. I am has sent me. Remember that? Well, another word that's used 2,600 times in which God describes himself is Elohim. It's a plural version of God in Hebrew. In this moment, Aaron says, let's get all these things together. He makes a calf and he says, and there he said, and then he said to them, this is Elohim, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron begins to fashion together this false idol and he mixes these practices that are clearly tied to Egypt, mixes these practices, but gives it the name of God. Do you see what's happening there? There is idol worshiping going on, but it's under the banner of God. We have a word for this. It's called syncretism. That we, we, we can sync up things the way that God, we want God to be. And this is exactly what's happening with the people of Israel. We need something to worship. It's a false gold calf, right? This is like, this is the, the cheesiest, the cultural icon of all types of forms of idolatry. Here it is, this gold calf, but the name on it, over it, to be worshipped is Elohim, the name given to God. But let's keep going. There's more to it. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. So not just the gold calf, but now an altar. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. FYI, we were just given law upon law on how to do this before the true Elohim. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is just interesting. I want you to see this in verse 6. What was just a a 40-day turn of, God, you're amazing. Oh my gosh, we can't go to the mountain. God, you've saved us. God, you're incredible. Not, Not barely a month and a half in, here the people are. They eat, they sing, they dance, they play. They've chosen their God. It's this crazy encounter of what happens with the human heart and I think what it reveals. But let's keep going. The camera now switches no longer to the people of Israel. It goes to the mountain. And the Lord said to Moses, now we're back on top of the mountain, go down for your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way uh, that I have commanded them. That word corrupt is important, right? Corrupting is this diluting, uh, exactly what we see in this idea of syncretism. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Verse 10, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. So God sees what's going on. Moses doesn't see what's going on. And he says the people have corrupted themselves. They're worshiping someone, something else, and they're mixing it with using my name, which I'm not okay with. And he gives this double imperative here. He says, let me be because I'm going to go down and destroy them. 
Now, before we get to the next part that, you know, God is saying, we're going to just start over through you, Moses. And Moses pleads on behalf of the people of Israel. Um, I think there's this part of us that goes, whoa, God. Like, it feels like God almost goes off the handle here. And it's hard because we can paint God the same way we can paint, like, entities, right? So you can, you can look at Planned Parenthood, which I think, I'll just be honest, I do not support whatsoever, right? And I can hate Planned Parenthood, the organization Planned Parenthood, which means I can hate the people in Planned Parenthood. And then I start to hear their stories, and I go, man, this is, this is difficult. Like, I love you, but I don't love what you do, and it becomes nuanced. But if I just have Planned Parenthood out there, it's just this entity. It's, it's, it's easy for me to hate. And now we have in this moment... God is angry and we don't see God as a person. We don't see God as someone that has feelings that we ourselves, as the Imago Dei are after, but we see him as this entity and we go, God, you're so angry to the point of killing someone and we miss this. So check this out. Candace, I don't love you anymore. Like feel that. Yeah, right. I'm going to get in trouble, but that's okay. Like you get the idea. Do you feel that? There's a personification in the room of understanding me telling my wife right there, like, that's not cool. That's not okay. It's definitely not true. She knows I love her desperately. I would die if it was not for her. Like, I, like that's, I love you, okay? <laughs> right? The idea, the idea is that when you hear that, a removal, and I say, I love someone else now, you feel that. And so God in this moment, I, I, I don't think it's just anthropomorphism, meaning like making God some kind of, um, like for us to understand, oh, he's angry. He's not really angry. It's just for us to understand. No, hear me. I think he's angry. It's not okay. It's not okay that I would just tell my wife, no, I love someone else now. That's not okay. And in this moment, God is angry. And so what we have is the narrative continues with God being angry, though it feels like he's going off of the handle um, That's not the case, and we'll continue to see this as he refers to them as this stiff-necked people. They continue to fight against, as an ox or a mule would fight against the direction in which the driver wants to go. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring to the stars of the heaven, and this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. In the midst of three chapters, I think that is really worth uh, reading because now it seems like Moses is talking God off the ledge, but breathe, that's not what's happening. As Moses looks at God, who is um, understanding, understandably angry, Moses begins to implore and intercede on behalf of the people of Israel, but he doesn't use Israel's awesomeness. I mean, you can see it there in the text. Look, he, he, he implores God on behalf of the Israelites because the Israelites are God's people. You can also see it there in the middle because of uh, God's reputation among the heathens. Like, God, remember like, what people would think. And then lastly, God, remember, you promised this. You promised this. And then there's this statement here in verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken, bringing on his people. So God now goes, okay, I I won't do this. Now I want to just kind of step to the side real quick and just acknowledge something. Because um, there's a, I think, a very unhealthy and uh, anti-Orthodox proper view that tends to be growing amongst millennials and younger than millennials called open theism. Open theism is the idea that God does not just plan what's going to happen in the future. Um, he doesn't even fully know. 
he, he's not even aware of what's going to happen. He, it is what it is, and, and he himself might be surprised by some of the things that count. And, and this verse uh, is one of three keystone verses that is used, and I just don't see open theism here. The idea that God now is, is relenting, or maybe some of your translations say even repented from this. There's a big difference between um, a, a godly or a holy decree, right, and a holy uh, proclamation of intents. And in this moment, God is saying, here's what's going to happen. He does this a bunch of other times in not versions of anger. That's not what's going on at all. I I don't see an open theism uh, place here, but as you read this, and the Lord relented from his disaster that he had spoken, bringing on his people, um, I want you to hear a God who doesn't move unilaterally. I I think it's important. This sounds crazy. Even holding to reform theology, this this is what holds my reform theology together. God hears his people's prayers and he acts. The God of the universe, who I have no question, no question in my mind that the Bible to- uh, points us towards being sovereign over all things, who is in control over all things, the way your hair is falling right now, absolutely in control of all things. And at the same time, the tension we live in, he hears your prayers and he moves accordingly. He adjusts. That's crazy. That's crazy that an all-powerful God, and you go, well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, you're, you're right. Like, let, let, let's, let's say, but you're wrong. <laughs> Like, here is God doing what he wants, and at the same time, here's the prayer of Moses and goes, okay, uh, Carl, Barth, Carl Barth, he calls this God's holy mutability. The term immutability means God is unchanging, but God in his holiness has this mutability about him where he moves and adjusts to his people's prayers, which is fascinating. And he hears Moses' prayer, and he goes, okay, I won't kill him. You're like, win, okay? Moses is like, yes, um, now, the text, I think, is hilarious um, because from this moment, verse 15 starts this, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain. So Moses is pleading on behalf, uh, okay, and God goes, okay, fine, I won't kill them. And Moses goes, okay, excellent. I'm going to be right back, okay? And he goes down the mountain, right? And, and now he goes, and Moses is not happy. He is not happy. Moses implored uh, all this stuff with the Lord, and now in verse 15, he's going to to go at the people. He goes down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the front and the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Everything we've learned in the last two weeks is on these tablets. When Joshua, he's going to be a man of war later for us in the, the context of the book of Joshua. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, this is a noise, this is a noise, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, this is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of a cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. So they're coming down the mountain and, and Joshua goes, I hear this sound. It sounds like war, but it's, it's not weeping. It's not victory. It sounds like they're singing. They're, they're worshiping uh, this golden calf, right? And as soon as he, Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he, drew, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Everything that we learned the last two weeks, gone, right? Now we get to go cover it again in the book of Exodus. Um, He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, grounded it to powder, and scattered it in water, and made the people of Israel drink it, okay? So, like, we're going to get to Moses punishing uh, them more. But then he goes to Aaron, okay, and it says this, and Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not your anger of, uh, let, I can read today, we can do this, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil, 
For they have said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of uh, the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Listen to verse 24, comical. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and it came out like this calf. Okay. Now, just in case you forgot the story, um, and I quote in verse 4, And he received the gold out of their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf, right? But Aaron's uh, reflection on the story is, I don't know, we like threw some jewelry in there, and like magically this calf like came out, right? Moses isn't having any of that, but we're going to let that lie where it is. Uh, and, and verse 25, it picks up, and when Moses saw the people, they had broken loose, for Aaron had let, uh, let them break loose uh, to the desertion of their enemies. It picks up in verses 26 and 29, which I'll explain in a second. I want to explain that term, though. So let's recap where we are. Moses comes down, breaks the tablets, frustrated. He then takes this golden calf. He uh, remelts it down, I guess, or ends up grinding it to powder and makes the people drink water with this gold in it, which can't be good as this form of punishment. We're, assume, we're going to assume some people died from this. And then from there goes to Aaron, rebukes Aaron. And and what I want you to hear in in all of this movement is this last statement where um, Moses recognizes that Aaron let the people break loose. Now, it may be hard to understand when we just read that as just brass tacks, but there's more going on here because it's a statement about the human heart. Aaron made the same statement. He says, you know that their heart is set on evil. You know that, like, from the point of Genesis 3, we are, our wandering heart is not being bound to God. It's gravitating towards false worship. And he says, you let them loose because naturally, like cattle, when it breaks open, they're going to they're gonna scatter. They're going to scatter. They want to go free. The, the intentions of our hearts want to break free away from the Lord. Now, that's important because that's not the way that the American ethos holds the human heart. You are naturally good, you've got it together, just people will figure it out with the right intelligence. That's not the way that the Bible describes the human heart. We naturally, by our propensity, the way that that, um, God has wired us is broken, and now we no longer desire to worship him naturally, we desire to be let loose and go on our own way. And so from there, what we have in verses 26 through 29, Moses continues to um, talk about punishing, and he does something um, pretty brutal, actually. And it's interesting, in 26 through 29, um, this part is not mentioned in Deuteronomy. When Moses retells the story of what happened this day, he leaves this part out. And I don't know, I can't say with all certainty, this is what God wants, um, but Moses does this. And whether God wants it or not, I don't know. But Moses then goes to the gate of the city where they're camped around, and he says, who's with God? And naturally, all of the Levites gather around Moses. And then he commands the, uh, the Levites to slaughter 3,000 people. Now you go like, whoa, whoa, what? Right? Whether it's Moses or not, here's, here's what I say. It's not okay what they did. Now, now you're going, well, I would justify it. Is it worth their death? Um, this gets into the tension that I, I wish I had more of a resolve to, to, to give you. Because uh, I don't know if Moses is working on behalf of God or not. I will say this. What they have done is far more heinous than you probably have in your mind which I hope to unpack here in a second. From there in verses 30, uh, uh, verses 30 to 34, uh, I'm just going to sum this up. Moses continues to plead on behalf of the people, but only up to this point we've seen Moses punishing the people. Now God comes to the people. He recognizes how terrible they have been. And, and, and um, it's hard to get our mind around w- w- what takes place, but there's two things that goes on. First, he sends a plague on them in verse 35. 
But, and, and, and I think it's interesting. Uh, we've got this plague language. We remember this, right? This was in Egypt, the same plague language that was in Egypt. When people who rebel and, and, and push against God, that plague is there, and he sends this plague. We don't know which one, but he sends a plague uh, amongst the Israelites. And then verses uh, 1 through 3 in chapter 33 are worth reading. This is the ultimate punishment um, that I think God can give. He says this, The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the uh, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Are you ready? And I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiffed necked people. God in this moment says, go. Go, this is what you're going to do, but I'm not going to be with you. You don't want me. You don't want me around. You want your gold calves. Have them. Have them. And so God says, I'm not going to send my spirit. And then again, Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelites. When the people heard this disastrous word, they moaned, they mourned, and no one put on their ornaments, which is this Uh, think of dress like a tuxedo or a nice dress that you go out. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves um, off their ornaments because they'd been dancing and singing. Remember that? From Mount Horeb onward. In this moment, the people of Israel, they hear that God is no longer to go with them, and finally it clicks how bad their sin really is. I'm mindful of two verses. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, how it tells us, um, like, be careful in all this, exactly what's going on, because it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of uh, of the living God. Like, in this moment, we... um, we, 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 like the people of Israel, can treat um, idol worship or false worship or giving our hearts away to the things that we want as something common. And God says this is not common and it's not okay. And, and now we have uh, Moses interceding. If you look at your text again, let me sum up some of this for the sake of time. Verses 7 through 11, uh, we're told now how Moses goes to this thing called the Tent of Meeting, which is like this meeting place between God and Moses before the tabernacle, okay? Uh, And then there's going to be three requests that Moses makes. You're going to need to look at your Bible for this. In verse 13, he makes one request. Please, God, send your presence with us. Come with us. There's the first request. You can see that at the end of 13. He asked, uh, Moses asked then that God would show him his way so he can lead the people rightly. This is echoes of what we'll eventually see in, uh, with Solomon as he asks for wisdom. And then in verse 18, I want you to jump down to verse 18 real quick. Uh, it says, and Moses said, please show me your glory. He makes these three requests. Please come with us. Give me wisdom in how to lead these people and let me see your glory. I, I would argue verse 18 is this declaration of God. Like he's worried God's not going to go with him. So he wants to see his presence. But these first two interactions, he says he'll grant. He says, fine, I will go with you and I will give you the wisdom to lead these people. And then verse 18, when he says, show me your glory, God says, you can't handle that. You can't handle that. So what, what I'm going to do is he puts him in this cleft of this rock. Um, he closes his eyes uh, until he walks by. And then Moses is able to see the backside of God's glory. Now, the whole thing sounds crazy, right? Like, what's going on here? Uh, the closest interaction we have of this is some version. Eventually, as Moses comes down the mountain, we'll find out of this transfiguration. Um, I don't know exactly what this looks like, but Moses could not see lest he die God's glory. But now God has declared he's going to go with his people. So let's start to wrap up this text. Moses said to the Lord, 
see you, uh, say to me, bring up your people. Um, uh, yeah, you know what? Let's, let's move on uh, for the text. Uh, for that. So Moses says, please show me your glory. God does what he just uh, did. And then in verse 19, uh, all the way through 33, it says, you can't look at me, the cleft of the rock, that whole deal. And then 34, it picks up with this. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. <laughs> you broke them. Let me, I'll, I'll do it again. Be ready by the morning. And I came up in the morning to, to uh, Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all of the mountain. Let no flocks and gaze and all, uh, uh, graze upon this whole, this whole deal. So all this whole, this whole thing sounds, if you were with us when John preached in chapter 19, it's very similar. We have, and I think this is what the text is doing, almost a reset. God in this moment says, you have failed, you broke these commandments, you did all this, the tablet's broken, and we have, let's go back on the mountain, let's remake the tablets, let's kind of start over. That's the feel of what it is, okay? And then in verse 6, I need you to hear this, because what we've had is this pressing against the monarchy, this theocracy that God has established, he is holy, he's the one who deserves worship, the people of God have rebelled against this, and here is God's response. And, and hearing and feeling anger, you need to feel just as much um, how amazing this next part is. Yes, God's anger. And you may be confused about God's angry to the po- anger to the point of killing people. But now you have this whole other side. Listen to verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. Stop. I don't know what that was. Um, that Okay. That was courtesy of the red, white, and blue, randomly. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, what are we talking about here? Um, oh, okay. So hear, hear God's declaration. He makes this declaration. I need you to hear both parts of God's declaration. He says this. Look at me. I am, I am steadfast in love. I am steadfast in faithfulness. I will forgive thousands, thousands of thousands. I will forgive generations upon generations. I'm here. You have grumbled. You have, you have complained. You have forgotten what I did. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. But hear me when I say this. I could never be okay with sin. And so the sin you're okay with, I'll never be okay with. The only sin I'll be okay with is the sin you're not okay with. And so God makes this declaration together. Yes, I have grace. Yes, I have mercy. Yes, I'll forgive. Yes, I have love. Yes, I'm here with you. But I can't be here if you love sin more than me. I I, I can't forgive that. And so there is something in our soul that goes, that's exactly what we need for president. We need someone who is gracious and loving and merciful, but at the same time stands on justice and says, you can go no further. I'm not okay with that. And God depicts this beautifully, and he says, let's make a covenant based on this, that you come to me and you know at any moment, wherever you are in your sin, I'm here and I will forgive you. But I can't forgive you if you love that sin and want that sin and don't want my forgiveness. I can't meet you there. I can't be where that sin is. But if you just say, I'm sorry, 
I hate it. I hate my sin. I am a sinner. I'm, I continue to get it wrong. God goes, I'm here with you. 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 But both of these have to be true in the covenant. And what we get from this last part in this account is um, bizarre from there. Honestly, what ends up happening is Moses ends up coming from verses 29. Well, verses 11 through 28, he ends up giving a lot of the law we've received up to this point. And then 29 all the way to uh, the end of 35, uh, we have Moses. He ends up coming down the mountain, having the tablets here with all the law, and, and his face is glowing. It's glowing so much that the people of Israel can't look at Moses because he's been in the presence of God. And so they put a veil over his face because his face is shining so much. And that's where I, I felt like there's this reference some to the transfiguration. And then the text is done. Like the, the last part that we have here in verse 35. And the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, uh, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with them. This is, and that's it. That's where we get. And so there's our whole text. And now um, this causes, like in all of this, I get it. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know what's going on. And there's a lot of questions that we have. But man, if I could be honest with you, there are certain sermons um, that, that I get to preach. And I think would be, just be true for all preachers where you go, if you can't hit this one, you shouldn't preach. Like, honestly, if you don't see what's here, you should not be able to communicate the word of God before his people. And, and if, if I can just call it what it is, if we were to zoom out from all of this, man, this text is calling our number. I mean, look from the jump. Hear me when I say this. Verses, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 32, I don't know if there's a better verse in all of scripture that um, defines better our relationship with sin. Uh, honestly, listen to, like, and Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, and so the people wanted to worship something else. Hear me, that's a summary of your and I's sin. Right now, we can't see Jesus. Is this real? Am I crazy? Am I talking to myself in the car? Am I reading this book pointlessly? And so we start to gravitate towards things because we don't know where God is. The delay of Jesus, where he is, when he'll return, we start to see what's in front of us. And what is most real is what's in front of us. And so we gravitate towards that. We worship that. We give ourselves away to that. That's the sin. That's real for us. But not only that, it becomes normal. That lifestyle ends up becoming normal. We are so like the Israelites in this. But what's crazy in, in, in seeing all of this and how we gravitate towards this sin, um, I want to do something to kind of wrap up Moses' time. He'll be mentioned again at the very end, but there's a wrapping up that I think I want to do because I don't think this story is about Israel. Uh, ultimately, I think we would agree this is, this is God's story. And in understanding God's story, he has chosen to use this man, Moses. And so what I thought would be helpful to finish our time in this big portion of this narrative is to look at Moses and say, well, what does Moses have to do with Christianity? How are we supposed to process Moses? And um, this is where if you are a good reader of the Bible, if you just spend five minutes a day reading your text, just if you were to read the New Testament, it is next to impossible to avoid how often Jesus and Moses are compared to one another. And so it's important because what we saw in this narrative of Moses, we can actually end up seeing ultimately in Jesus. So this isn't something I'm making up. If you, and you can just write these down if you want to. But actually, Peter's sermon that he gives in Acts 3, uh, verses, verse 22, you'll see is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, 15. But um, Peter affirms that Jesus and Moses should be seen by, uh, next to one another. In Acts seven thirty seven, Stephen talking to the Sanhedrin, he quotes Moses, okay? But he gives credit to Jesus for saying it. 
So this isn't something that I'm just saying. This is all of your text. And it's in small ways and big ways. In small ways. Just look, some of these things I wrote down. Moses and Jesus were both born in perilous times, narrowly escaping the, the, um, uh, this, the king murdering babies. Moses and Jesus have this weird connection with Egypt. Moses escapes Egypt. Jesus flees to it. Moses spent 40 days as a shepherd. He's the shepherd that we know of. Jesus being the ultimate shepherd. Both Moses and Jesus uh, were considered extremely meek in Numbers 12 and uh, Matthew 11. So there's these small ways, but there's also these large ways that I want you to see. Um, and this is going to be important for our, our narrative. Moses and Jesus both meditate uh, and mediate a new covenant um, for God's people. So you can look at this in Exodus 34, which we just read, but also in Luke 22, we're reminded that um, Moses is kind of the father of the Old Testament covenant, right? The father of all people being Abraham. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant as we see in Luke chapter 22. Um, Also, more than that, what we saw in a big picture, Moses leads his people out of captivity. Jesus ultimately leads his people out of captivity. You get it, so on and so forth, okay? But there's two things that I need you to see this morning in our text as the people of God rebelled that I think are key for us understanding this connection between Moses and Jesus. The first one is this. um, If you go back, you can look at this in chapter 33, verse 11 of Exodus. You're gonna see this declaration. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. There's, and it's, it's hard to understand this, honestly, but there seems to be a clear difference in God's relationship with the people and God's relationship with Moses. He seems to love to be with Moses and cannot be around the people of Israel. Moses has this extreme connection with God, right? And, and more than anyone else to walk this earth Jesus would understand this connection. If you were to, to read uh, Matthew eleven seven eleven twenty seven, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Father. I'm sorry, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the, the Son. Jesus, because I'm only going to go where God tells me to go. He constantly relies on the Father. There's this presence that's being asked for. So I want to stop there and explain why this is important. Why would we go and put New Testament, Old Testament uh, together? Um, The moment that God declared that he was no longer going to be with his people in our text this morning, the people that that's what woke them up that they realized in that moment, oh my goodness, we've sinned, but God isn't going to be with us anymore. And so I I just, I want to talk with us just for two minutes real quick, um, at how important that idea is. Okay. I was talking with some guys. I do some discipleships with guys on Sunday at 6am and we were talking this morning and our conversation gravitated towards this idea that, um, like, man, there's moments where you don't feel God. And that, that's a natural thing. There, there's a natural part of that, that, that experience that we have as Christians. But I, I don't want to talk about the feeling and not feeling God portion of it. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about thinking we can live and act and continue to do Christianity without the presence of God. We, that's all, listen, that's all we have, you guys. All we have, different from Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, your non-saved friends, all we have is the presence of God. If God is not with us in power, what are we doing? If God is not in this room, why are we singing? If God's presence is not with us, nothing else matters. And the people felt that. I'm worried at times as individuals, we don't feel that. We go on about what we're doing and we think we can do this Christianity thing or this even worse, this terrible church culture thing without the presence of God. 
That, that, should, that, that should do something in our soul. It should shrivel us up and go, this isn't right. I need the power of God in my life. I need something real. And it doesn't matter how charismatic I sound in this, but the reality is the presence of God is all we have. And if God is not with us, this whole thing is garbage. It's just silly. Like we can pass each other in the halls and say good morning and drop our kids off and eat our donuts. Some of you 25, 30 donuts, whatever it is, right? And, and we, can, we, we can try to give money away to missions. Who cares? Who cares? Without the presence of God, what are we doing? We need the presence of God. And so I hope that we would lean in the direction of praying that he would meet us. Praying every time we open our word that he would reveal it, that he's there. That this isn't just mechanics. This isn't just know-how. We're not relying on ourselves, but we're on our knees recognizing we need him. Now, no other culture in uh, poverty-stricken areas has to fight for this reality because they have to pray for their daily bread because they literally need the God to provide for it. But we have these, all these opportunities to forget how desperately we need God to intervene. That breath you just took is from him. Recognize it. Those thoughts you are having right now, there are a thousand, ten thousand people brain dead in a hospital bed right now who can't think like you think. That is a gift. Pray that God's spirit would be with you. That everything you're doing, you're gravitating towards him. Everything you're doing, he is next to you. He is speaking to you. He's revealing himself to you. We need his presence. We need his presence. He's got to be with us. The problem is we're not worthy enough to be in his presence. We, like the Israelites, want our golden calves so we don't want the presence of God. We want something that is like the presence of God, that, that hollow fills, um, fill us, fills us in a hollow way, but we'll, we'll claim it as the presence of God. We put a banner, the name of God on it, but it's not the presence of God. It's, it's know-how, it's the American gospel, it's you do it, you've got it figured out. It's whatever you want, you morphing God into whatever image you want. And, and, and here's, here's what's amazing about our text. There's no better connection between Moses and Jesus than of intercessor. And, 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 and here's what I mean by that. Um, Moses continues to go to God and saying, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. Please, please forgive them. If I have found favor with you, please forgive them. The problem is he's going to have to do this again and again and again and again. And let me remind you of this. That's not true for us. That's not true for us. Jesus will not have to go to the cross again. But what he is doing and what is true for us is that now he sits next to the Father, according to Hebrews 9, what we read last week, and I'll even uh, quote you in, in Romans 8 uh, here in a second, the idea that even now Jesus is intercess- he's, he is interceding on your behalf. So this is crazy. When you're, when, you're, um, when you're saying things you know you shouldn't, when you're thinking things you know you shouldn't, when you're doing things you know you shouldn't, when, you're, when you shouldn't, when you shouldn't, when you shouldn't, or when you should and you don't, and you should and you don't, and you should and you don't, instead of gravitating towards guilt, you rely on Jesus. And check this out. In this moment, Jesus is next to the Father and saying, it's okay, I, I paid for that. No, that's okay, I, I, I paid for that. No, I, I took care of that. I took care of that. I took care of that over and over right now. He's doing it right now. Jesus is the great intercessor. And if you are a believer in this room, the, the guilt you might gravitate towards, it's unwarranted. It's not necessary. Jesus is interceding on, behalf, on your behalf. And at the same time, Jesus being an all-forgiving, loving God, he hates your sin. It, 
and I know I've talked, this is the last thing I'll say, I know we've talked a lot about how sin um, God hates because, um, because it, it, it makes us less human and it, and it shrivels us up, and that's true. But listen, there is a, um, there is a tragedy in us missing how bad or how much sin um, does to the character of God. How much it, it breaks him at a, at a level where you go, oh my gosh, I'm so, I can't believe this. It's hard not to read the book of Hosea and go, what are you doing? So hear that, know that. This is exactly why Jesus came. This is why Jesus continues to intercede. He loves you. He's there with you. He continues to intercede on your behalf. And at the same time, he's never okay with the sin you're okay with. He's not okay with that. And my prayer would be that we would seek his presence through the name of Jesus Christ. And that would be true of us as a congregation. Let me pray for us. Father, as we read a story about a people who've rebelled against you and had someone intercede on their behalf, we are mindful that is our story. That we are people who've rebelled against you and Jesus, you have interceded on our behalf. That there needed to be punishment, a plague, drinking of gold, death. There needs to be sacrifice. And Jesus, you took it. You took all of that. And so I pray that we would see that as a very real thing and then we would desire you to be near to us. Um, I pray both those things would be true. We need your presence, God. We, we desperately need your presence. And we need to know that it's because of you, Jesus, that we get it, that we can come boldly to you. Thanks for uh, the book of Exodus and reminding us, God, how much you truly hate false worship and hate sin. And yet at the same time are so quick to start a new covenant to come back into relationship with us. Thank you for that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.